Welcome to Filmy Girls Idolcast. Hit it. Our opening song today was our old friend Yamashita Tomohisa, aka Yama P, with Hadakambo, taken from his first solo album, Super Good, Super Bad, released January 26th, 2011. And this was a live performance on Hey Hey Hey, which originally aired on January 31st the same year. And at the time, Yamashita was still a part of news, but it was more and more just a name only. And then on October 7th, later that year, he officially quit the group and became a solo artist full-time. And now Yamapi had always been interested in the United States. And one of the first things he did as a solo artist was this travel documentary where he, like, discovers himself driving down Route 66 in an old truck. And I don't know if it's still available anywhere, but it is worth a watch if you can find it, especially if you're an American. There is nothing so humbling as seeing your country through the eyes of a foreigner. And be sure to take a peek at the linked video so that you can see Yama P in this fabulous glittery purple suit, flanked by a quartet of neo-geisha backing dancers. Although it's not to everybody's taste, I've always loved Yama P's raspy singing voice and effectless performing style. He's not a vocal powerhouse by any means, but he has a great sense of rhythm and knows how to play that line between chest voice and falsetto that just punches every single one of my buttons and he has fantastic taste in songs. Okay, so we've discussed Lee Suman's SM Entertainment and Young Hyung Suk's YG, but there is another agency that we have to bring into this story, JYP Entertainment. Now, JYP was started by the singer, songwriter, dancer, choreographer, actor, all-around entertainer Jin Young Park in 2001. And the company nurtured a handful of very successful acts over the first few years of its existence, including a wildly popular male solo singer named simply Rain. Maybe you've heard of him. But Jin Young Park himself is also a really fascinating character. He's a man who was born to be on stage, but who found his biggest career success behind the scenes as a producer. And it happened almost by accident. Hey, 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 hey. 
Turn Down in an audition with SM Entertainment. Jin Young Park began his career in 1994 with an album called Blue City, and he made an immediate impression on the Korean public with his sexy lyrics, suggestive dance moves, and revealing costumes. Midriff bearing tops, booty shorts, and see-through plastic trousers were de rigueur for JYP. Unfortunately, the reaction wasn't all positive, and he found himself having to, among other things, fend off attacks from Christian groups concerned with the moral health of the nation's women and girls. I mean, who knows what kind of deviant thoughts they might have watching JYP sway his hips and slap his butt in those plastic pants. JYP had spent a few years in America as a kid when his father had been transferred there for work, and while he was there, he developed an interest in African-American music and dance, and it's those influences he drew on when, in 1998, he was asked by talent agency EBM to take on the songwriting and producing duties for a new boy group called G.O.D., or Groove Overdose. The group were wildly popular, and it makes sense that since he was doing all the heavy lifting and producing, G.O.D. eventually transferred to JYP's own JYP Entertainment once he got it up and running. And now I need to mention something a little tricky here, plagiarism. I touched on this briefly in episode 4, but I have to bring it up again because it gives an important insight into where JYP's mind was focused. As I said in episode 4, Korea traditionally had a lax attitude about plagiarism and copyright. Again, it's something we also see in popular Hindi film, Bollywood, of the same era. And I want to be very clear that I'm in no way advocating for plagiarism, but Let's step back just for a moment and do a little thought experiment. How many versions of the fairy tale Cinderella do you know? Is retelling the Cinderella story plagiarism? Well, Disney would say so. Well, what about reusing a chord progression? Can somebody own not just a piece of art, but the building blocks of that art? A story? A melody? Where exactly do you draw the line at what is influence and what is theft? Copyright is something that's developed over the years as a way for artists to ensure that they are getting compensated for their work. But the system is far from perfect and full of tensions with the way that art is actually produced and corporations and these big companies like to cordon off large sections of it. So what is fair and what is not fair is it's not always crystal clear. All popular music pulls its influences from somewhere. And there has always been a great deal of borrowing across the popular music spectrum. And some of it falls under the category of acceptable, and some crosses a line. Led Zeppelin, for instance, many a dad's favorite rock band, as of this recording in late 2018, is still in court, thanks to their liberal borrowing of other people's music. And personally, I find Led Zeppelin making millions of dollars on the unpaid labor of African-American blues musicians morally repugnant. But what about JYP? Well, listen for yourself. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone She's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone If she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away 
egregious as the Rura Ninja example I played in episode 4, but it's close enough that I think we can say with some certainty that JYP was quite aware of American soul in R&B music, and he clearly found that music inspiring. And the reason I'm willing to cut JYP some slack on this is because, number one, as I said before, the culture around plagiarism was a lot looser in Korea at the time. But also, number two, the audience for G.O.D. wouldn't have been aware of or interested in Bill Withers, who wrote Ain't No Sunshine When You're Gone. This wasn't Led Zeppelin claiming ownership of traditional blues songs, essentially cordoning off the public domain for their own profit. What J.Y.P. was doing was taking the music he loved and reshaping it and remolding it to fit into a Korean popular music context. Whether or not he should have been doing it, I can't answer that. But the fact is, he did. And the sound of JYP Entertainment is the sound of American soul and R&B as filtered through Korean ears. And why this is important is that while SM Entertainment and YG were focused on cracking China, Japan, Southeast Asia, almost from day one, JYP had its sights trained directly on America. And it would not be an easy road. All through the early to mid-2000s, JYP's performing career took a backseat to his role as an aspiring entertainment mogul. In 2004, he opened a small office in LA and started networking, going only by his initials to hide his Asian identity and hopefully stave off racism. He had a bit of success, getting writing credit on a song for Will Smith, among others. But it wasn't until 2006, when the aforementioned Rain had a sold-out show at Madison Square Garden in New York City, that American show business really started to pay attention. Who was this guy Rain? And how do we get in on that money he's generating? So JYP's first attempt at really exporting to the American market was in 2009 with the girl group Wonder Girls. And it seems like a smart decision at first glance. The Wonder Girls had built up a fan base in Korea, beginning with their smash hit Tell Me in 2007, and they seemed like it would be a good fit for an American marketplace that in 2006, 2007, 2008 was obsessed with girl groups like Destiny's Child and the Pussycat Dolls. And indeed, Wonder Girls became the first Korean group of the modern era to have a song make it to the Billboard Hot 100 with an English version of the song Nobody, a smooth and very American-sounding mid-tempo R&B ballad accompanied by a Motown-inspired video. Wonder Girls even joined American boy group the Jonas Brothers on their North American tour that year as an opening act. Unfortunately, what American show business companies didn't understand was that Americans, as a whole, really had very little interest in Asian exports. The enthusiasm for Rain was coming from two very specific demographics. Korean-American diaspora looking for a piece of home, as well as Asian-Americans understandably hungry for a non-white celebrity culture, and non-Asian women, like me, who had become fans of Rain through watching his Korean dramas with fan-provided subtitles. These two demographics had no problems with Rain's inability to speak English since we either spoke Korean or knew a fan subber who did, and were drawn to him and to Asian pop culture in general precisely because it was different from what the American entertainment industry was offering us. In other words, Rain's audience was not an audience that wanted a sexy girl group singing in English. Despite the heavy promotional push, Wonder Girls made absolutely no impression on mainstream America. Wonder Girls never put out the English language record they had teased, and JYP Entertainment racked up some major financial losses. The company was forced to retrench. But Rain had showed that there was an appetite for Korean entertainment. 
the appetites and tastes of the American market were just going to be trickier than expected for Korean cultural technology to unlock. The next few years would see Korean artists stopping in LA and New York City to play to enthusiastic crowds, but nobody outside that bubble really cared until July 15, 2012, when a rapper named Park Jae Sung, known professionally as Psy, uploaded a new music video to YouTube. Maybe you've heard of it. It was called Gangnam Style. And it went viral on an unprecedented level. For the next few months, American media bellied up to the K-pop content hose like pigs to the trough. While the 2012 election droned on all around us, the American public could not get enough of listicles that titled things like 10 things you didn't know about Gangnam Style Number 4 Did you know that Gangnam isn't just a funny made up word, but a real neighborhood? And not even the pompous prestige media could resist getting in on the action with the New Yorker publishing a hacky expose of K-pop written by a middle-aged white guy that focused almost exclusively on how attractive he found the girl groups But none of the listicles or explainers touched at what the American public had been truly captivated by. To the eyes of a complete outsider to Asian popular culture, Tsai's Gangnam Style video was a wacky kaleidoscope of technicolor images accompanied by a catchy song. Hack critics could, and did, quickly google and then condescendingly explain all of the video's tropes. But it didn't matter to the people watching that Tsai was mocking glossy export-driven K-pop and the nouveau riche of Gangnam. All that mattered in the fall of 2012 was that relentless hook accompanied by Tsai's little horsey dance. A truly universal language. Open Gangnam style. Okay, so it shouldn't be surprising to anybody who has followed along this far that there was a K-pop group ready and waiting with a concentrated dose of exactly what people loved about Gangnam Style when a worldwide public, curious about this whole K-pop thing, started googling around for more videos. JYP wasn't the only fan of American music in Korea. A guy you might remember from episode 6 named Kwon Ji Yong had long been obsessed with American hip-hop. And he had a few words for us. Come together, everyone gather here. We gon' party like dee dee dee, da da da. Open your hearts, empty your minds, light it on fire. Dee dee dee, da da da. Yogi Butara, Motomoyara, we gon' party like dee dee dee, da da da. Mama Yara, Marty B. Wara, Puru Jim Yara, dee dee dee, da da da. So when we last checked in with Big Bang, it was at the end of 2009, and the group was riding high in both Japan and Korea and G-Dragon had just released his futuristic pop art solo album called Heartbreaker. And then nothing for 2010, outside a couple of perfunctory and utterly forgettable Japanese singles and a handful of Japanese tour dates. So just what were these hardworking guys doing instead? Well, along with the odd acting and variety show gig, they were making music. Day Song released the digital single Cotton Candy on January 26, 2010, a song far more sweet and earnest than anything he got to do as part of Big Bang. And in something we'd see more of in the future, YG made it available for free for three days in an attempt to stave off illegal downloads. <laughs> released the digital single, Turn It Up, 
on June 10th, 2010. A straight up rag rap song about making older women's panties wet. Thanks to T.O.P.'s lyrical skills in our, um, eardrums. That was banned from venerable broadcast channel NBC because of a verse where he lists a whole slew of pricey foreign brands. She got it, she got it, she not got on it, so fresh Sexy and the cold world I'm not going to get into your energy I'm not going to get into your energy Turn it up now Turn it up now Taeyang released the album Solar on July 1st, 2010 Produced by our old friend Teddy Park from back in episode 6 and featuring a guest appearance by G-Dragon. The album reintroduced Taeyang to the public as a suave, I'm a lover, not a fighter, R&B singer with still classic songs like Wedding Dress. T.O.P. and G-Dragon then released the simply named G.D. and T.O.P. on December 24th, 2010. The album was packed full of party anthems, like the We're Not Even Gonna Try to Hide What This Song Is About song, High High. The chorus goes, High High, I'm So High. And in what could only be the world's strangest coincidence, G-Dragon would be busted for marijuana a few months later. On January 11th, 2011, Sung Lee released his mini-album, The VIP, produced and written by him, and it was perhaps the closest to all of them to sounding something like a mainstream Korean pop sound. Finally, on February 24th, 2011, almost five years after their debut, Big Bang released their first new Korean music as a group since 2008, with an EP written in large part by G-Dragon titled Tonight. Big Bang, Big Bang, we back again one more time, say no way, no way, no mushigeto namidei. Big Bang, Big Bang, don't stop, let's play okay, okay, go, go, go. The vibe was sort of an American outlaw, easy rider theme, with the video for the title track shot on the dusty roads and neon sign graveyards around Las Vegas. G-Dragon wearing this incredible jacket that had a fur-lined hood, edged in these colorful military patches and fringe. Tonight was a close enough cousin to what was on the radio in America at the time to be accessible to Westerners. Remember, this was the year of songs like LMFAO's Party Rock and Like a G6. But it was also so unapologetically a Big Bang song that it was not only a hit at home, but it was also the first Korean album to reach the top 10 on the American iTunes chart, and it landed at the number 3 spot in the Billboard Global Album Charts, and it landed high, high on the Independent Album Chart as well. And that same week, the Japanese version of GD and TOP's solo album cracked the top 10 of Japan's Oricon Album Chart. Big Bang? We're now officially a worldwide band. So the next track I'm gonna play is my favorite song from the Tonight EP called Cafe. And it's got a very different feel to the American radio pump up the jams and party vibe of title track Tonight. Cafe is bittersweet, lyrics about depression laid over this kind of retro soul song. And it's absolutely the kind of song you would put on in a coffee shop at 4 p.m. on a rainy Wednesday afternoon, looking out at the world going by, 
window blurred by rain, or is it your tears? Luckily, we have Big Bang to sing us through it. Cafe opens with T.O.P.'s sultry bass before G-Dragon busts in with this amazing falsetto hook. I remember when you walked to that door, sit down in that chair, the times of shit, but you've been hit. said in episode 6 that Korean record sales were nowhere close to reaching Japan's, even putting population numbers aside, there were still a few reasons for it. One is cultural. Despite Japan's reputation as a forward-thinking country, they are still very slow to adapt new technology and are not very trusting of digital content. This is a nation that still uses fax machines in 2018. A second reason is that Japan has strict laws in place against copyright infringement and illegal downloading, and people tend to follow them. Korea, as we've learned, does not have the same taboos. YG was ahead of the trend in offering digital content and putting up content for streaming, but again, as I said in episode 6, the money was not and is not as good in streaming services as it is in physical sales, and the Korean public is less conscientious about illegal downloads. The numbers you need to make digital content as profitable as physical sales are orders of magnitude bigger. Because even if you've seen the news where they say that 2018 is the year that digital streaming services have finally saved the music industry, you just have to look at the proportion of money that the services are generating and see where that money is actually going. Because trust me, it's not to the artist. So as somebody who buys CDs from both markets, the divergent paths of the Korean and Japanese companies has been really interesting. When Japan's idol groups put out multiple versions of a product, there's differences in packaging, yeah. But the actual incentive for buying three copies of a single is the differences in content. One version might have a few extra songs, another might have a DVD with a making of for the music video, and a third might have a DVD with a live performance from a recent concert. This is content that is not available online, and because Japanese fans are conscientious, it's content that will not find its way online. 
If you want to see Arashi's production process and rehearsal footage for their latest tour, you have to buy the DVD or Blu-ray. And people do. I do. In Korea, beginning around the time of the launch of Melon, what companies started to do was put out an album, and then put out the same album a few months later, the addition of a few extra songs. It was called a repackage, getting double mileage out of the same content. And for a few years before YouTube really caught on, there was some experimentation with putting extra content on different versions of an album. For example, DBSK put out a bunch of video extras with one of their versions of Merotic. But by 2011, when Big Bang put out Tonight, that model had been all but scrapped everywhere except Japan. Different versions would have differences in the packaging, not differences in content. Big Bang's Tonight coincided with a rising interest in Korean pop music from English language fandom circles. On image-heavy social media platforms like Tumblr, fans don't need to understand Korean to appreciate Big Bang's good looks and outrageous fashion. And curious web browsers who stumbled across a reblog of Taeyang's abs could easily click on over to YouTube and watch him in action. And it was also around this time that social networking began to allow non-Korean fans to fully participate in real-time fandom for the first time. Thanks to the efforts of Big Bang fans across the globe who used social media to coordinate their voting, Big Bang were invited to the European MTV Music Awards on November 6, 2011, where they won the best worldwide act against stiff competition like Lady Gaga. And this spurred a small wave of press coverage from journalists fascinated by this stylish group and their enthusiastic global fanbase. Western awareness of K-pop was bubbling just under the surface going into 2012, when Big Bang released another EP on February 29th, 2012. It was called Alive, and it was written in large part by G-Dragon, with some help from our old friend Teddy Park. And it would be accompanied by a truly global tour, with arena stops for the first time in the US, South America, and Europe on top of the Asian tour dates. Alive was the first Korean album to chart in the Billboard Top 200, and their single, Fantastic Baby, was a worldwide hit and it was accompanied by an insane post-apocalyptic music video that featured the members of Big Bang battling it out against the fascist forces of no music. The video would also be the first by a male idol group to hit 100 million plays on YouTube. In just six years, Big Bang had gone from playing to audiences of hundreds in provincial Korean cities to filling arenas in the furthest flung corners of the globe. What Big Bang did with Alive and its music videos was a feat of true cultural technological genius. The music was close enough in style to what was on the American radio so that American critics and fans unfamiliar with Asian pop were able to make sense of it. But the imagery accompanying the music leaned hard into the way that Westerners exoticize Asia in Asians. If Big Bang were gonna be otherized anyway, they may as well control the way it's going to be done, right? Rainbow-colored hair, extremely stylized makeup, and fashion that came directly from a futuristic sci-fi fever dream. And on top of that, instead of the dance-heavy videos that were the bread and butter of groups popular in Asia, like Super Junior, the video for Fantastic Baby had no cool choreography. Instead, it featured the extremely masculine and muscular bare chests of Daesung and Taeyang. So despite the weird and exotic imagery, at its core, Fantastic Baby had a type of masculinity that Western eyes were comfortable with. It was understandable to Westerners in a way that something like the poppy gotta gotta go with its glittery costumes and dance moves could never be. And in my opinion, the true genius of Big Bang is that they are able to convincingly do both without alienating either audience. And for my money, the best track on Alive is the tender Bad Boy. Built around this laid-back, heavily swung groove, it's like the platonic version of a Big Bang song. The vocals and rap alternate and feed into each other like stirring cream into coffee until they all blur together, with the bliss point of the song, the shaved chocolate on top of the coffee, if you will, coming when Taeyang hits that sung bridge with this falsetto line. You can just feel it when he says, come back to me, me, me. The video is also effortlessly cool, the way that Big Bangs so often are. Shot in Brooklyn on a frigid winter day, the five members walk along the humble city street under the subway tracks as they plead with their ladies to take them back. 
G-Dragon wearing yet another amazing coat. This one a green bomber with the back covered in this shocking aquamarine fur. T.O.P. with his futuristic neon blue hair. Taeyang showing off those guns even in the freezing winter. And they interact with the women in different ways. T.O.P. walking off as if he'd forgotten she was even there. Taeyang dancing up on her as if they're in a club. G-Dragon pleading only to have his hat pushed down over his face. Come on, they know they're bad boys. But can't we love them anyway? This is truly one of my favorite music videos of all time. But I can't change, nigga, sorry, honey, not and sorry, I'm a bad boy. episode that while Big Bang were out conquering the world in 2011, Arashi had turned their focus inwards on a traumatized post-disaster Japan with the truly lovely album Beautiful World. And then in 2012, as Big Bang were fighting the forces of no music in a post-apocalyptic hellscape, Arashi were also getting ready to take up arms against sadness and boredom. Arashi announced that they would be holding a two-day special event called RFS on September 20th and 21st at the National Stadium in Tokyo. And RFS wasn't just any concert. This was going to be a celebration of Arashi's relationship with their fans, and they would play the songs that we wanted to hear. No matter where you were in the world, all you had to do was get the Johnny's and Associates app and cast your vote. Why I think this is important is something that Arashi member Matsumoto Jun says during the ending goodbyes. He says that he wanted to make something with the fans, not just for them, but with them, together. Arashi were the hottest thing in Japanese show business, but they knew better than anyone how unforgiving that world could be. How is Arashi, as a group, going to define their success? Now that there were no more mountains to scale, what was the incentive to keep working, to keep reaching higher? In one word, RFS. 
Arashi took those ballots and looked at the selection of songs that fans had chosen, songs spanning their 13-year history, and they said, oh, huh, you guys actually listen to all the b-sides. That's awesome. The songs that fans selected for RFS were a mix of songs that had emotional weight, like Love So Sweet, the theme to Hanayori Dango, songs that were really fun to be a part of at concerts, like Hadashi no Mirai, a cheesy surf-rock-themed ditty from the dark ages of 2003 that has a catchy dance with fan participation that goes with it, and songs that took Arashi by complete surprise, like the love shown for B-side Tokejikake no Umbrella, a groovy album cut love situation, and hidden track Energy Song. And they treated all of these songs with the care and respect they deserved, because the fans loved them. I touched on this in my introductory episode, but it's worth mentioning again here. These songs, like Love Situation, cannot be critiqued in a vacuum. Objectively speaking, no idol group is ever going to be putting out aesthetically pure music on a level to challenge the masters of Western capital A art like Philip Glass. That's not the point. Love Situation is not just a catchy song from 2007's time. The song was performed in concert using a very clever staging with Ono and Matsumoto dancing on top of one moving stage, while Ninomiya, Sakurai, and Aiba were on a second. The two units traded off, dancing and singing, as the massive moving stages drifted closer and closer together until they united. The choreography was also really fun to watch, and it has a handful of show-stopping moments that send up a wave of cheers from the crowd, such as when Ono and Matsumoto meet in the middle of their platform, as if they're gonna hug, and instead they use the momentum to flip backwards away from each other, on a clear moving stage, high over the head of the crowd. And for Arathas, they recreated the original staging and danced the vigorous choreography with maybe even more enthusiasm than they'd done five years earlier. For Toke Jikake no Umbrella, the B-side to forgettable also-ran single My Girl, Ono created a brand new and pretty complicated choreography that played on the strong Latin flavor of the song, with the members kind of interweaving back and forth like little matadors. It's really fun to watch. But this was choreography that they memorized for a B-side song that was never going to be used more than once for this RFS concert. heights that they'd reached in 2012. Arashi were humble enough to listen to their fans and actually hear what those fans were saying. We liked these songs, these dances, this music. And Arashi said, all right, yeah, cool, we got it. Music for Arashi is something they create with the fans, not a personal catharsis for fans to bear witness to. And if an idol group is going to last, this is something that they have to understand. Just about a month after RFS, on October 31st, 2012, Arashi would release their 11th album. It was called Popcorn, as in pop art, pop music, popcorn. And it put all of Arashi's cards on the table. I mean, the first track is literally titled Welcome to Our Party. And the album as a whole is a lot of fun. But musically, it hinges on the three singles. The electropop Face Down. Come, 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 come. 
much more traditional J-poppy make you love song. funky wild at heart and these three songs would be the foundation for everything to come over the next few years make you love song remains a personal favorite of mine to sing in the shower i do remain a fan of classic j-pop at heart but the next song i'm going to play is wild at heart released march 7th 2012 as a single and it was written by a couple of finnish songwriters but the song is american style retro soul done with a very Japanese feel. For one thing, the beat is much straighter than if it had been done by an American, or indeed a JYP group. But the horn flourishes and the funky bass line more than make up for the lack of swing. So, Wild at Heart is also performed with this very cute choreography that uses mic stands, um, and it was done by longtime Johnny's Jr., Yara Tomoyuki, who played around with the sort of standing in place dance moves that you might see like the OJs doing on Soul Train back in the 70s, but again with an updated and very Johnny's and Associates twist on it. <laughs> Arashi's 12th album, Love, released October 23rd, 2013, Arashi actually went to New York to take some dance classes with Jaqueline Knight, choreographer behind Beyonce's Single Ladies, among other songs, for the album track, Paradox. And the accompanying music video for the song shows the members looking very cool and very sexy as they hip thrust their way across a stage set that looks remarkably like Georgia O'Keeffe's um, flower paintings. Paradox assaults your senses like getting a blast of strong cologne right in the face. It's overpowering from the start, opening with a wall of sound and diving right into the sultry verse before climbing back out with an incredible buildup to the chorus. It's all horns and crazy synthesizers. Love indeed.
for 2014's The Digitalian, Arashi leaned hard into electropop with a whole slew of super catchy songs, with Aiba's solo song, Disco Star, striking a particular chord among fans who fell in love with the concert performances, where Aiba does a series of over-the-top, sexy dance moves while dressed in a ridiculous pair of skin-tight purple bell-bottom trousers and a paisley shirt with neon pink fringe. And I cannot emphasize enough how delightful it is. Japonism was a bit of a departure, with the theme of the album revolving around Japanese culture, to include the title track, Sakura, aka Cherry Blossoms, uh, songs that Johnny's and associate group Ninja might well have performed 20 years earlier, as well as a cover of a shonen title, in Aiba solo, Mr. Funk. <laughs> Did I mention that I love Aiba? <laughs> Sixteen's Are You Happy saw a return to the more contemporary style of the Digitalian, and it is one of my favorite Arashi albums. There isn't a single dud on the entire disc, and single Tsukatsu Love was the first in a long time to pose serious competition to Make You Love Song as my go-to shower singing song. The windy descending line in the chorus still gives me goosebumps, even after checking my iTunes at least a hundred times listening to it. followed by Arashi's last album of new material, 2017's Untitled. The somewhat scattered musical content, combined with the vague title, makes me think that Arashi have reached another end of the era. And Untitled is not a bad album, not by any means, but it is an aimless one, a retreading of familiar ground. Now Arashi are busy with their 20th anniversary at the moment, but I know that I'm going to be looking forward to seeing how they reinvent themselves on the other side, much like they did right after their 10th. Before we close out this episode, I think it's worth looking at the contrast between Big Bang and Arashi in 2012. They were both wildly popular. They were both playing around with pop art visuals. They were both packing venues. But where Big Bang filled more modest 10 to 20,000 seat venues around the globe, Arashi was doing 50, 60,000 seat venues, but only in Japan. Big Bang were famous worldwide with people who knew what K-pop was, while Arashi was famous to absolutely everyone in Japan. Big Bang fans voted for their group in award shows. Arashi fans voted on their favorite Arashi songs for Arashi. Big Bang had videos 
and other things on YouTube, accessible to anybody in any country around the world. Arashi put on a special two-day concert packed with long-running inside jokes, like the return of the indecently clothed comedy duo Omiya SK, that you had to be physically present in the stadium to see. One group turned outwards, the other inward. And I'm not here to say that either model is better or worse. They're just two very different ways of being the world's biggest idol group in 2012. After Gangnam Style, more and more curious outsiders with absolutely no cultural knowledge or context would jump into this whole K-pop thing. Some assimilated to the existing Asian Idol fandom culture. Some did not. Global fans of Japanese groups, like Arashi, remain more or less alone in their bubble. And we'll see that tension play out more and more in upcoming years. So I'll play this episode out with a song from one of my favorite groups that I sadly have not had room to mention yet, a JYP entertainment group called 2PM. 2PM began life back in 2008 after a bumpy few years trying to stay afloat amid JYP's obsession with America. 2PM opened for the Wonder Girls in the US in 2010 and subsequent financial troubles. They finally got a bit of luck in 2011 when they made a successful debut in Japan and a couple of the members starred in a wildly popular drama called Dream High in which JYP himself also had a minor role as a crotchety dance teacher. I highly recommend it if you're in the mood for kind of like a fame slash high school musical kind of thing. It's really good. But it's the three albums that 2PM put out between 2014 and 2016 that really cemented their place forever in my heart. Go Crazy, Number 5, and Gentleman's Game remain some of my all-time favorite albums capturing the best of the JYP sound, taking the roots of Motown, R&B music, but using them in a fresh and original way. I had a hard time picking just one track to share, so I may have to revisit 2PM and their saga at a later date. I really, really, really love 2PM. So this is Can't Stop Feeling from 2016's Gentleman's Game, and it was written by member Chang Sung, and I'm not too proud to say that the snare on this song drives me absolutely crazy. That is a drum kit sound. Oh my god. Anyway, I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. I just can't stop feeling. You are I can feel in my eyes. Don't 
up in my baby. 